Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. I'm here with a dear friend, former school administrator, director of a early childhood education program in Chicago, and he's also a national speaker and trainer and has deep experience in almost all aspects of education management and on-the-ground curriculum. We're going to talk a little bit today about early childhood education and the state of affairs of education in the U.S. Andy Krugley, welcome to the podcast. I've been trying to get you on the podcast forever. You were the first person I thought of that I wanted to have on the podcast. I remember when we first started talking, I was like, well, what are we going to talk about? There are so many things that we could talk about that I didn't really know where to begin. But there's no question in my mind that when I think of you, you are the expert that I turn to in terms of how early childhood education and primary elementary education can work and should work more than anybody else. I typically start by asking a little bit about your background. So tell me about your education background. I got my bachelor's in elementary education from U of I, and then I got my master's in educational administration and supervision from U of I. I started my career teaching second grade. Mm. I taught second grade for four or five years. I taught fourth grade for a year. And then I became a principal of a K-6 building out in Woodridge, Illinois, which is kind of sandwiched between Downers Grove and Lyle. I did that for four years, and then I got an amazing principal's job in Evanston, Illinois, mm-hmm. at Dewey School, where I then spent 13 years. Wow. And it was a really cool experience. We we basically had a small little turnaround school in terms of closing the achievement gap. At that time, we were using the ISAT, the Illinois State test achievement test Mm -hmm. um when i got to that school i would say our majority kids were passing in reading at about 70 ish percent and our minority kids at about 30 percent in reading with similar in math and 13 years later we had a passing rate of with our majority kids in reading, 94%, and our minority kids at ninety at 76%, wow. up from 30. Well, so, and, so and, and Evanston, for those people who don't know, was is notorious or famous for having a very significant achievement gap. It's very much a white and black city, so that's probably the number one challenge in the in the school and the community. Right. And our and, and the building that I was at was very, very dichotomous in terms of it was very wealthy white families and very low SES minority families and really not a lot in the middle. Mm-hmm. A number of the schools in Evanston have that middle, but where we were located, which was by Northwestern University, there wasn't a middle. It was mm-hmm. one end or the other. So what do you attribute the success to over your time there? I think two main things. I think one is being in a place for that long, you build your own staff and you build your own team. And because I was there 13 years, it's all about, uh, in the administration world, it's about building the trust of the teachers, the trust of the parents, the trust of the students. The whole community needs to kind of buy into what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And there was some turnover as well, which allowed me to bring in my own own team. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second piece that really had a huge impact on what we were able to do in the building was we adopted what we call PBIS, Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports. Mm -hmm. And what that did was really changed the climate of the building. What I've learned, you know, since as I've moved into the world of early childhood education is that all learning takes place in the context of a relationship. 
So mm. when I take that, what I learned, what I've just learned, you know, working in early childhood for the past seven years, and I look back upon what I did in the elementary ed world mm -hmm. is if all learning takes place in the context of a relationship, it's building those relationships. And in order to build the relationships, you need to change the school climate. Mm -hmm. So when I got to that building, I think my first year there, and you know, this is how I was trained before I learned PBIS and ways of using positive discipline techniques was if someone does something bad, you suspend them. Right. Right. So my first year there, we had over 70 suspensions, a total of 70 days with like 27 kids total with over 70 days of suspension. Five years into using positive behavior interventions and supports which the kids referred to PBIS. They, they called it please behave in school. It's really funny. But that number went down to four days of suspension from two kids. Wow. So, Impressive. you know, and that was, but that was about my learning curve as an administrator. And then how did I change the learning curve of, of the staff? Because what we learned about behavior is that, in order to change children's behavior, you really need to change adult behavior. Mm -hmm. And so it was really about how we approached the whole idea of behavior um, management as opposed to discipline. And you did that through professional development? We did that through, through, through professional development. PBIS was a, a government-funded research-based program. Mm -hmm. We became the first school in Illinois to reach exemplar status using that. That then became part of the response to intervention movement, RTI. And if you looked at that RTI triangle, it got divided in half, one side being academics and the other side being behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were looking at is how do we deal with the universal behavior? How do we deal with targeted behaviors? And then how do we deal with really specific intense behaviors? And how did you get buy-in from faculty for such a, an ambitious program? Took two years. <laughs> Took, you know what, but, but the buy-in came from the data. So mm. we collected data on every single behavior infraction that happened in the building that first year for our baseline. And we analyzed that data monthly. So one of the, one of, you know, the success stories that I tell is in looking at that data, we found out that the most, what we call office discipline referrals, ODR, the most of those happened between 10 to 9 and 5 after 9 in the morning because we recorded the time. We recorded everything. Mm -hmm. That's entrance. That was morning entrance. Mm -hmm. And so we started going, all right, what's happening at morning entrance? Teachers are going out to the playground. They're getting their kids who are following them, following behind them like little ducks down our building at one long hallway and they're climbing over each other to get to their lockers and there was pushing and shoving and fighting and not a lot of monitoring mm -hmm. uh, from the staff. And what we did was we changed the order in which all those kids came into the building mm -hmm. and the, the room furthest down the hall came in first mm -hmm. so that kids were not climbing over each other. Mm -hmm. And instead of teachers going out and getting their kids and then the teacher have it walking in front of a line and not seeing what's happening behind them mm -hmm. is we had two teachers outside that sent the children in, in, in order. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the teachers were in the hallways, just monitoring the kids coming in. So now the adult behavior changed 
We're all out in the hall monitoring the kids as they're coming in. They're coming in in the order in which the rooms are located in the building. And within three weeks, the number of discipline referrals that happened during that time period dropped by 50%. Wow. And so you get, and so then you put that data in front of the staff and you get by. They buy in. You get by. So they, so over the, the time you were there when you, after you got the PBIS in place, how, when did you begin to see the payoffs in terms of achievement? Within, within a year and a half. So as soon as, you know, when I got there, if, if a child was misbehaving, they were sent to the office or if a child was misbehaving, they were sent into the hallway. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just what people did. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, bad it's just what people did mm -hmm. but when we learned a better way to approach this mm -hmm. and how do we keep kids in class and how do we give kids replacement behaviors for the behaviors that are bothering the teacher mm -hmm. right because a, a child with adhd isn't going to stop drumming so how do we make that drumming less annoying to the teacher so that the child isn't being sent out of class Got you it. put a strip of play-doh on the side of the desk so that the child is drumming but he's drumming quietly so how did you make the transition to early childhood so after 13 years at dewey school it was time for a change mm -hmm. and my friend my very dear friend deborah who actually used to work for PBIS Illinois and was our trainer at P for PBIS. She worked at the Ounce of Prevention Fund. She left PBIS and worked at the Ounce of Prevention Fund. Tell us about that. What's Ounce of Prevention? One of the biggest nonprofits in the city of Chicago focused solely on early childhood education. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of their work on the policy side, getting policies changed in Illinois mm -hmm. and nationwide. But they also run the Educare Learning Network, which is a network of schools around the country. Mm -hmm. and they had created a position, a director of ed. Mm -hmm. It was a brand new position, and Deborah called me and said, we need you for this. Great. What was the work? It was working on educational quality in the early childhood field, and I got to travel around the country to our different educare schools and almost serve as, as, a, as an educational consultant, but I was working for the Ounce of Prevention Fund, and I got to go into classrooms and, and create coaching models and work with coaching both teachers, master teachers, and school directors mm -hmm. on how to increase educational quality in early childhood education. Early childhood education right now, it's very hard to assess children from six weeks old to age five. Mm -hmm. And so there is an assessment called the CLASS, the Classroom Assessment Scoring System. How new is that? Relatively new. 10 years. Okay. 10 years. It started with just pre-K and now they have infant, toddler, pre-K, early elementary, elementary, all the way through high school. Got it. And what it does is it's an observation tool where you're observing the quality of interactions between children and teachers. Mm -hmm. And people think it's it's very subjective and it's uh, not. Right. It's it's the very it's 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 very objective even though it's an it's an observation. Mm -hmm. There are very, very specific things that the observers are looking for. Who's, does, who's doing the observations? Teachers or are people coming in from outside? Or it both? depends. It okay. depends. Either way it can work. You have to be trained. As, okay. You have to be a trained observer in 
the class and you have to go through a very rigorous training program and then every year you have to be recertified on a very rigorous inter-rater reliability system where you're watching videos and coding them and you're, it's a score it's a scoring system from one to seven and you have to you have to be within one point of what they call a master code. So what's the correlation between the performance that students do on that assessment and how they do, I don't know, in on on more tangible tests and long term assessments. So in the pre on the pre K class, which is the first one that was developed, mm-hmm. was developed at University of Virginia by a researcher named Bob Pianta. What the research says is there's three domains that you and you can't average the scores. You get three separate scores. Mm-hmm. One in emotional supports, mm-hmm. which is that learning within the context of a relationship and what's the relationship between the teacher and the children. Mm-hmm. Classroom organizational supports, which has mm-hmm. to do with behavior management, productivity, and what kids are actually doing. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is on instructional supports, which falls into three different um, dimension areas, concept development, quality of feedback, and language modeling Mm -hmm. for young children. So all of those don't sound like things that kids do as much as things that the school or the teacher does. It's it's how the teacher sets that up for the children. So is the teacher asking open-ended questions? Is the teacher using a variety of language, complete sentences, lots of different types of words? And what's the, so, okay, so how does that forecast? So the correlation is in that domain of instructional supports, a 1 to 2.99 is considered low, 3 to 5.99 is considered mid-range supports, and 6 and 7 are considered high-range supports. Okay. National average is about a 3. Okay. What the research says wow. is that if you get that's above, low. yeah, it's really low. It's really it's hard. It's really low. hard. To, it's, it's a really. I was gonna say that's a hard test. <laughs> it, it's a hard. Well, it's hard to get past the idea that early childhood education is child care, right. not early childhood education. Right. And so many people aren't thinking about how do I develop concepts in young children? How do I develop language in young children? Mm-hmm. I just need to provide really cool activities and let kids explore, but there's more to it than that. But what that research says is if you get over that Mm 3.25, that's the threshold Mm -hmm. where you start to see changes in student outcomes that can last to third grade on individual student tests. Four kids who are in elementary school. Three years old, okay. Four years old, oh, in elementary school. So so at age four. What's the earliest you you would... do this so you do this assessment in a preschool classroom okay for three of three four-year-olds okay. got it but what the research says is that if a child is in a classroom where the supports are over a 3.25 mm-hmm. that that's when the needle starts to move on their individual student outcomes mm-hmm. that will last through third grade and then when this is reassessed in later years based on the model it's the same outlook it's basically predicting a two three year outlook of continued success the the domains and the dimensions change with each okay. age group so what this is really about is if a child leaves a room that was scoring over a 3.25 or a child that was leaves a room that's got an instructional support score of a five or a six you know mm-hmm. really a high score mm-hmm. they're going to go into kindergarten and first grade more ready and then when you can individually assess children on whatever it is that they're being individually assessed on, mm-hmm. they're going to score higher. Mm-hmm. So does this drive not only, so this is a measure of quality of school, quality of classroom. Is this also a measure of individual student 
Is it, is this used for measuring student achievement? No. Okay. It's measure. It is, and it's not even a measure of the of the school. It's okay. the measure of the interactions mm-hmm. in that room between the adults in that room and the children in that room. Okay. And Ounce was doing this. Ounce was promoting this, or this is this, or this is conventional wisdom across the board. So uh, this is all Head Start programs. All Head Start. All Head Start programs across the country. All Head Start programs across the country are evaluated on the pre-K class. Okay, so you were at Ounce, you were going around the country, and you were training people on this and more. Right. I was helping them, and and I don't want to say I was training them on on the assessment. Mm -hmm. I was training them on how to change the quality of their interactions so that when they Ah, were assessed, they would get a higher score. But I wasn't, you know, this whole teaching to the test thing that that people talk about, that wasn't my intention. My intention was you need to really understand this tool so that you can change the way you interact with kids so that when you're assessed on this tool, you will get a higher score and your children will do better. But it's it's not a test. It doesn't look like a test. It looks like a measure of activities and skills more than a test. Correct. A person is sitting in the room taking notes and then codes the behaviors right, on, right. A, on a scale of one to seven. Right. Okay. So how long did you do that for? So I did that for three years. And that was my first foray into early childhood education. I learned a ton. It made me think about all the things, wow, that I would have done differently as a K-5 principal now right. knowing all about early education. Well, what's one or two of those? What's, give me a couple of those. So sure. So, so you know. Elementary education, we're really good at collecting data. We're really good at using data to drive lesson plans, right? Mm -hmm. Elementary education, not real Mm parent-friendly. When you look at, at a Head Start program or an early childhood program, the program is about the family, It's not just about the children. It's about the whole family. So there are parents in and out of those rooms and those buildings. And, and there's, there's, there's a total different feeling about how the early education system treats the family. When, when they get to the elementary school, it's, yeah, you can come in and volunteer or we'll use you, but they don't have a say in the program other than, you know, you've got a PTA or a PTO that's a governing body, but they, they're rubber stamping things, whereas in early ed, you're looking at, we call it a two-gen model, and what we say is, I don't want to say parents because it's not always parents, so mm-hmm. caregiver mm-hmm. caregiver outcomes mm-hmm. plus student outcomes equal family outcomes, mm-hmm. and in the early ed field, you're looking at that whole family, and you're looking at that that two-gen approach mm-hmm. to, to learning. So when you were with Ounce and you were doing this work, you were working primarily with teachers, school leaders, teacher leaders. What were, what, who, oh. was you, who were you talking Parents? Uh, no, I wasn't working with parents at that point. Um, so you were, you were really working on the ground with getting teachers to, teachers to change their behaviors and at the same time getting schools and school leaders to change their behaviors. Yes. And, so I was working and, with what, what, we, what in Educare they referred to as a master teacher, teacher leaders, teachers themselves and school leaders. That was primarily my focus. Okay. So what did you do after that? I left there and I became the vice president of education and program operations for um, uh, an agency called Chicago Commons. Tell us about that. Chicago Commons is an agency that focuses both on child development and senior services. 
Okay. Um, so in the senior services department, we do um, in-home health care and adult daycare services. And mm-hmm. I had a, a counter vice counterpart vice president mm-hmm. who ran that program. And then I oversaw four directly operated um, early childhood schools that, that we ran as well as um, 12 partner schools, which were smaller, independently operated daycare centers that we were partnering with through early Head Start and Head Start funding to bring a private child care center up to Head Start standards. And hmm. so I oversaw oversaw our four directly operated schools, our partner program, and our entire family engagement program. Okay. So some, I'm sure most of our listeners know of Head Start, but just just to maybe set a little, a little lay the groundwork a little bit, Head Start is, is known in the early childhood education expert circles as being the gold standard of early childhood care, middle of the road, or kind of minimal government activity? Head Start is the gold standard of early education. When you're doing this work, when you're doing this with Chicago Commons, what's the mission of the organization and how does it differ from Head Start? The mission of our organization, of our organization, was about ending isolation and poverty and for low-income families. Got it. So that hits either end, you know, the isolation that seniors feel, the isolation that families living in poverty feel in the child development space. But our mission in my department of early ed is to make sure that my kids are as ready for kindergarten and public school as their more well-resourced counterparts. Mm-hmm. And Chicago Commons very specifically had a, a, an educational pedagogy that was very different than most other early care and education programs, which we focused on the Reggio Emilia model of education out of Italy. Um, you don't see that model being used in low-income settings. You see that model being used in very wealthy settings. What's the mo- what models do you see in low-income settings in Chicago or nationwide? Um, kind just of a, just a more traditional, just a more traditional, very basic okay. early care and education program. Okay. But you weren't working so much with curriculum as much as with the, or was that part of what you were doing? Curriculum and the kind of the the delivery of the program overall. No. So I, at that point, I'm now the VP of this agency. I'm overseeing the entire program. Um, I guess the way I describe it is it was kind of like being the superintendent of a small school district. So I had school directors that reported to me. I had a director of community partnerships who ran that program. I had a director of family engagement who ran that program. We created a department called Excellence, Quality, and Innovation, Mm -hmm. and I created a director role there. Mm -hmm. So we were really focusing on cutting-edge, research-based, data-based early education programs. So you have worked in a public school. You have worked in a nonprofit that's probably got a national, it's got a national reach for sure, and has a kind of a very clear agenda and you've worked in a you've worked in a, a nonprofit that's concentrated on the city. What do you like the most, and what have you found to be the most both meaningful for you and the most efficacious for society or for the community that it's being served? You know, every one of the experiences has given me something that that I can take away from, and every experience I've had has been gratifying in in really different ways. Um, 
I think what I've learned in the jump from elementary education to early childhood education mm -hmm. is that there's a huge disconnect between the two systems. And part of that is because of crazy government funding and how early childhood education is funded. In my agency right now, I deal with 11 different government contracts that, that, that we have to blend and braid in order to, to fund and operate a program. And that that's frustrating, right? Mm -hmm. But what I learned is if I go back to my experience as a K-5 principal, if I walked into a kindergarten room, I could within five minutes tell you who had early education and who didn't. Fascinating. Could How? tell you within five minutes which children had been to a preschool program or an early, whether it be Head Start or a private preschool program, you could pick those kids out immediately. So what would you say to a parent who is, has a young child, very just, just born child, and is thinking about education and has in their head the idea that early childhood education is babysitting, is glorified babysitting? What's the first thing you would say to them? No, it's not. Uh, the Why? first the first thing I would say is that early childhood education is just that early childhood education. I don't personally like to refer to most people refer to an early childhood space as a center or as a site. To me, they're schools, they're places of learning. And well, what we have to get into our heads is that an early childhood school looks looks and feels completely different than an elementary school or or a junior high school mm -hmm. but it's still a school it's a place of learning mm -hmm. and what i've learned is that early childhood educators are the most underappreciated the the most poorly paid yet Everything that we know about brain research says that 80% of a child's brain is formed between birth and age three. So that should be the time where we are spending the most time educating children. And right then it's about self-regulation, emotional supports, and language and language development. You know, we're not teaching in early education. We're not teaching necessarily math or literacy, but we are. We're not teaching addition, subtraction, reading and writing, but we're teaching children colors and patterning and spatial awareness and all of those things that are going to make it easier for them to learn what we consider traditional math or traditional reading when a child gets to elementary school. But you're not going to be able to sit down and get into traditional reading if you haven't in early ed been reading to children every single day, been asking children open-ended questions. One of the things that on the class you're, you're evaluated is, are you asking open-ended questions? And teachers would always say to me, well, how can I ask a nonverbal child an open-ended question? I said, you ask, you ask the child the, the open-ended question, you give the same wait time that you would give to a third grader, mm -hmm. and then you answer the question mm -hmm. so that the, because the children are hearing and learning and listening, even though they're not speaking, you, you develop your receptive language long before you develop your expressive language. Children understand the word no long before they can speak the word no. So when you're talking about what you would say the most high value thing that you could bring to a early childhood center that it doesn't already have, you would place above perhaps curriculum 
in writ kind of described in a traditional way and even above maybe kind of managerial expertise or operational expertise, you would place this ability to develop those skills or work in those areas that you're describing. Right. But the goal is high quality teachers, not just caregivers. Mm -hmm. That's why it's a lot of people refer to it as early care and education is because you are caring for the children. It's not that there's not, quote unquote, a daycare piece to it because the daycare or child care piece to it, which I don't want to refer to as babysitting, that's the care and the emotional supports that you're bringing to that children those children because all learning takes place in the context of those relationships. Mm -hmm. So it's the development. It's the, the care is the development of the relationships. It's helping children learn how to eat family style. It's helping them, you know, set the plates out and pour the milk and serve themselves and have conversation, social conversation during family, family time, family style meals. And that's not just teaching manners or developing culture in a kid that's actually it sounds like that actually has deeper brain implications for long-term learning correct correct explain that a little bit teach that out a little bit it's about self-regulation it's about it's about social interaction you know you think you think that when a child gets to elementary school they know they're supposed to sit in their seat and raise their hand if they want to talk you have to teach them that they have to sit in their seat and you have to teach them that they have to raise their hand. You have to teach children how to enter a game properly on, on the playground. Mm -hmm. All of those social interactions should be taking place and all that learning can be taking place in the early ed space. We need to teach children how to interact socially with one with one another. So when they get to that elementary setting, which is more structured, mm -hmm. they have some of those skills already. We have to teach children how to self-regulate mm -hmm. um, when they're when they're young, so that a temper tantrum is not what you see in first grade. Mm -hmm. A temper tantrum is normal for a two or three year old. Mm -hmm. But you don't really expect that from a six or a seven year old. You have to teach children how to behave socially. And so it's not just putting them in social situations. Mm -hmm. It's putting them in structured social situations. So now I'm going to teach you how to self-regulate, but I'm also going to teach you the concept of big and small while I'm teaching you how to self-regulate. And big and small is a math concept. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So even so, even in high-performing daycare, early childhood centers, what would you say in maybe wealthy areas and maybe with the parents who are very focused on making sure that their kids have the best and that they're going to put whatever resources they need into it, what do places like that get wrong, in your opinion, either in terms of what they do internally or what the parents maybe are doing wrong? Or what have you seen that kind of are maybe the biggest areas that even the best and most high-functioning organizations aren't doing well? High-functioning organizations are doing this well, but I think what gets lost, and I think what everyone always has to keep in mind, especially in an area where the socioeconomic status is higher and people are more focused on academics, and you know, I would I would hear a lot. Kindergarten parents would say, "My child's already reading Harry Potter." That was that was one of the things uh -huh. I would hear a lot, sure. right? And I would say, "I bet your child is word calling Harry Potter and can has cracked the code and can read all of those words, but isn't creating meaning out of all those words." Reading is is not only just word calling, but it's it's actually the, the act of creating meaning. 
what I think that people miss is staying in the developmentally appropriate practices zone. Not just saying faster is better or acceleration, doing the thing that the kid next year is doing this year is better. Right. Or saying my child needs to be reading before they get to kindergarten. My child should be reading at age three. Mm -hmm. No, at age three, your child should be behaving like a three-year-old and starting to know what letters are and starting to know that print moves from left to right, recognizing a a letter is a letter, Mm -hmm. recognizing that the red octagonal sign says stop and that means that you stop moving. So So the choices for a parent who really is concerned about giving their kid a leg up and giving them a competitive advantage in a highly competitive future world, they're going to be saying, well, I want to make sure my kid has an advantage. Therefore, I, I understand the idea of wanting to accelerate and get them, the, get them ahead. If they need to be developmentally at these levels, how should a parent or what's valuable for a parent or a school, I suppose, or, or a center to be doing to, I, to, to make sure that they're, they're meeting, those, meeting those, I don't know, those standards or those skills? What are those? They're standards. Okay. I, I think everyone has to understand... And again, I think that's where professional development for a staff is really, really important. We have to remember a couple things. We have to remember educators like to say, I'm trained in education, so I know better than a parent. I I would hear that all the time, especially in the K-5 setting. The child's first and primary teacher is the family, Mm -hmm. is the parent. So we have to remember that. And just because I went to school and have two degrees in education and 30 years of experience in education does not mean that I know better than the parent of that child. I may know educational pedagogy. I may know how to teach that child to read, but I don't know better than that child's parent. That child's parent is their first teacher. So we have to keep that in mind. And I think, we lo- I think educators lose sight of that a lot. Mm-hmm. I also think that we have to think about in this competitive space that we're in, I think that's why a tool like the class was developed so that we're not forgetting that we do want to teach concepts to these young learners. We do want to make sure that we're providing them with a really rich vocabulary. We do want to make sure that we're giving them feedback that's appropriate to help them learn. We do want to make sure that we're asking open-ended questions, that we're helping children think, that we're providing science, technology, engineering, and math STEM activities. Four-year-olds are perfectly capable with playing with gears, mm-hmm. which is which. Which, if you think about it, is is an engineering experience. So we need to provide those high-quality, rich experiences that are still developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. Teaching mm-hmm. a child how to add and subtract is not necessarily developmentally appropriate for a three-year-old, mm-hmm. but putting manipulatives out on the floor and counting them is and pushing them together into one pile from two piles is that's the beginning of understanding addition. And we also have to remember that every child develops at a different rate. And just because one child might be reading at age five, another child might not start reading until age seven. So what do you think about, I know this is a bit of a, this is a a bit of a debate, both in 
in schools and probably in early childhood is in early childhood, there's always a decision parents make when they send their kid to an early childhood center, whether it's a licensed center and it has licensed staff or whether it's just a daycare center, a baby, uh, the, the, it's more of the baby babysitter vibe. And same thing in schools, where schools are, quite frankly, there are charter schools now that have non-certified teachers, unlicensed teachers, and there and there's the, the, the Teach for America debate versus the licensed debate. Um, how much do you think that state licensure, either in the state of Illinois or in other states, how much do you think state licensure and university preparation for professional education gets it right? It's a huge, loaded question, John. I think that licensure is very important, but I also think that there are certain aspects of licensure that are ridiculous. Okay. So in Illinois, in the Department of Children and Family Services, licensing standards so so dcfs licenses the early childhood people yes so in order yes you have to be a licensed provider and dcfs is is the licensed provider now are there a list of licensing standards that i think are incredibly important for the safety of children absolutely and you don't get that in a non-licensed center right you're really focused on safety on the other hand, on the flip side of that, there are antiquated um, licensing standards. And I'm going to give you one that, that blew up on the, on the program director's listserv last year. Was This question came up. How many licensing reps, when they come out to your center, are checking to see that you have two quarters in your first aid kit? Now, you have to have a first aid kit, and you have to have that first aid kit whenever you leave the room. If you go on a walk, yes, you should take that first aid kit with you. That's a licensing standard. Mm -hmm. Can a child ever be left unsupervised? No, that's a licensing standard. That's an important licensing standard, right? Mm -hmm. Are you going to get dinged by your licensing rep if you don't have two quarters in your first aid kit? You know what the two quarters are for? No. Payphone. Oh, wow. So what you're saying is that the licensing standards for DCFS, at least, are too low. I'm just saying that they're, some of them are antiquated. And I'm saying that the licensing standards are important, but I think that they need to be relooked at more often. So how much of the, the stuff that makes... Do you need two quarters? In a, do you need two quarters yeah. now to make a phone call? No, right. So how much do you think that... You can't the, even find a payphone. Right. How much do you think... And yeah, why would you want to? The, how much do you think that the early, that early childhood education is standards are being taught in those programs or being... Uh, the, the education part of early childhood education, how much is that being prepared for in the licensing standards? Because certainly in, in, in schools for, li- for certified licensed teachers, the professional license standards are at least ostensibly talk about curriculum and they talk about learning and teaching. They're not, they don't really drill down on a lot, but it sounds like for DCFS, for those licensure standards, the bar is much more focused on safety. safety. And so there is, is there any discussion of curriculum or of, of learning standards or of the stuff that you were working with without? There's discussion of, well, yeah, there's discussion of teacher qualifications and there's a huge shortage of early childhood teachers right now. I assume because of pay. Because of pay. um, And also because some of the qualifications um, are really high. So DCFS requires in Illinois that early childhood teachers have a certain number, and I don't recall off the top of my head, certain number of hours of early childhood education. Now, do I think that that's important? You mean university credit hours? Yes. 
Now, do I think that that's important? Yes. But do I think that there are also alternative ways to get those credentials? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, I have a master's degree in uh, educational administration, and I have a bachelor's degree in elementary education. Mm-hmm. And on my transcripts, I do not have any early childhood coursework, maybe one class in child development, which would equate to three credit hours. I can run a $14 million arm of my agency that's all early childhood, but I am actually not qualified to be a director of one of my schools Mm -hmm. or a teacher in one of those classrooms Mm -hmm. because I do not have enough early childhood credit hours on my transcripts, but I have way more knowledge and experience than many, many people entering the field. What's the impact of that? Because some people would say it's fine for there to be managers or administrators who are doing functionally operational HR, managing man and managing humans thing. And they're not really, they don't need that technical expertise, if you want to call it that. And then there are other people who say, you should never be managing early childhood or you should never be managing teachers in schools without having that expertise. I think there's there's the happy medium there. Just because you have a teaching certificate or a teaching license, does that make you a good teacher? Mm-hmm. So is a credential or a license a proxy for quality? Or is it really quality? And so I think that there's a happy medium. Do I think that you should go into a classroom and be teaching children if you haven't been trained to teach children? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You need to be trained how to teach children. Does it have to be a traditional licensing from an accredited university? A lot of people would would argue both ways. And, And, you know, I could walk down either side of the street on this one. I think that you need to be trained to do what you're doing, but how you're trained, there are many different paths to be trained. I got my training on the job. Should I have been allowed when I started at the ounce to go teach in a preschool classroom? Absolutely not, because I didn't know a whole lot about early childhood education. Mm -hmm. Could I teach in an early childhood classroom now? Absolutely. Am I allowed to? No. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that what we have to stay open to is that there are many different paths to get the qualifications that you need to do the job, not just one. Mm-hmm. So if you could, if you were a parent today and you were sending your kid to an early childhood center, you would absolutely pick a licensed center. I would pick a licensed center and then I would want to know what, what the average class scores at that center were. The class scores on what uh, scale? Uh, uh, the, the on the emotional and uh, organizational and the head start scale. Yeah, the zero to seven scale. And what would you? What's the number you would look for? For emotional supports, it'd have to be over a five. For organizational supports, it would have to be at, at least a four point five. And for instructional supports, I would want to see a. Th- 3.25 or higher. Let's talk a little bit about management because you've obviously a big part of what you've been doing for a very long time has been working with adults and managing adults and organizations. We all know that historically schools, and I presume it's a little bit less true in early childhood centers, but schools have 
had teachers operating in silos where they're not talking to each other a lot and responsible for kids on their own. And that's going away as we have more data, as we have more evidence of what works and what doesn't work. I'm curious about how you move organizations. How do you move people? And what have you seen success with? You mentioned earlier your experience of getting buy-in when you were in Evanston and how you showed the data. What else seems to work? I go back to trust. I think that the only way to truly manage people is for them to trust and respect you. They don't have to like you, but they have to trust and respect you. So while every place where I've worked, people may not have liked me, I believe that they knew that I knew what I was talking about. And so you have to know your stuff if you wanna manage people. You have to know your content knowledge, but you also have to know how to work with people. And that's hard. I read two incredible books this year one was called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Mm-hmm. And one was, and, and the first dysfunction is trust. One was also called The Leadership Pipeline. It's kind of knowing where you are on that path of leadership. Are you an individual contributor? Are you a leader? Are you a leader of leaders? Are you an organizational leader? And you have to know where you fit in that pipeline of, of leadership. Because if you try and straddle different pipelines, you won't be successful. And so, you know, I'd been an individual contributor for a really long time. Learning to let other people be the individual contributor is something that a leader has to learn to do. Becoming a leader of leaders, that's a big step. You have to not micromanage. You have to let your leaders learn through their actions with your guidance. That's a hard thing to learn how to do. Yeah. That's a really hard thing. It's an even harder thing to actually do. Yes. Right. Well, so talk about the future. What do you see as the need, both in Illinois, maybe Chicago, but Illinois, and maybe even nationwide? What do you see as big picture, where you see education needing to go? I think that we put people in leadership positions that are really good individual contributors, but maybe aren't ready to be a leader. Mm. Or just because you're a really good teacher doesn't mean that you're going to be a really good leader. And I think that we need to think about, do you want to be a leader? Are you being thrown into a leadership role because you're a really good teacher? Because that maybe you just meant to be a really good teacher. It's recognizing where people fall on that continuum. How about in terms of curriculum or in terms of operations or in terms of assessment or in terms of just broadly speaking, what we're doing in this country that is is working or is not working for children? I think that we're just now, especially in the early childhood space, we're just now starting to learn how to use data the way the K-12 system has always used data. Um, you know, again, I don't like making data high stakes, mm-hmm. but I but data should be used for continuous quality improvement. And how do we how do we actually use data to change practice to change student outcomes, not just to reach a score or a number to make a cut? But are we using data and do I take the data and then use that data to change how I lesson plan, how I plan for my building, if I'm, if I'm a school leader, but with the, out, with the goal being always 
focusing back on the child and the family? How are we using the data to change the outcomes for that child or that family? So one last question. As an out-gay academic leader and professional, you're renowned in the community and you're well-known for being a model to a lot of up-and-coming members of the LGBT community. Talk a little bit about what it's like to be a member of the LGBT community and in education. Yeah, that's crazy because if I think about when I started, when I went into education, elementary education... I was scared to death that if someone knew I was gay, I would never get a job, that I would immediately be pegged as a pedophile or a child abuser, that parents would not want their children in my classroom if they knew. I was lucky that the first principal that I had knew and was super cool and didn't care, but I never got over that fear. And it was five or six years into my career as a, as a second grade teacher that I slowly started to come out and I did it in a very cautious, very cautious manner. I'll never forget being at, at a bar mitzvah of a colleague's son. And there was someone that I didn't know at the table who was talking about his son and that his son wanted, a, wanted an easy bake oven for Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And that this dad was mortified by that. And I said... Well, are you going to get him the oven? And the my colleague that was sitting next to me is literally kicking me under the table. Uh-huh. Don't say what you're going to say next. Don't uh-huh. say what you're going to say uh-huh. next. And he he said something that was fairly inappropriate. He said, "Well, yes, I'm going to get him, get it, but I hope he doesn't turn out to be." And then used a word that I don't care for. Right. So I'm not going to say. Right. And. I looked him right in the face and said, well, I hope if he is that you love him and support him the way my parents love and support me. I thought that guy was going to fall over. And and I said to him, you never know who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. I think he learned a lot that day. And I learned a lot that day about being brave. When I entered my principalship, my second principalship in Evanston, I made the decision to enter out, not to be in that role and slowly come out, but to enter out. And I think that my doing that served as a role model for some children in that building that I I know of. Mm -hmm. I had a teacher who was gay and I'll never forget him coming to my office and he said, I think I just came out to my class. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure how that's going to go over. Mm-hmm. And I said, we'll take care of it mm-hmm. because someone's going to come and complain to the gay principal about the gay teacher. And to this day, and, and I, I, you know, I see him maybe once a year and I haven't been at that school. He hasn't, but he left before I did. So we haven't worked together in over 10 years. Mm-hmm. We still see each other. We still see each other at least once a year. And I love reading his Facebook posts about how he's helping his students because he's an out gay teacher and proud. Mm-hmm. And, and he, you know, he said, I helped him do that because I allowed him to come out as a, as a teacher. It still is scary sometimes, but I live in a blue liberal state. I'm in a blue liberal community. I was there. In fact, I was working at the ounce when the marriage equality bill in Illinois passed Mm -hmm. and my supervisor, I 
don't know how I got it, but I got a ticket to that signing mm-hmm. of Governor Quinn. Mm-hmm. And, at um, UIC? At UIC. And she said, go, take the, uh, she said, I'm not even giving you a vacation day, just go. I got there and I got there pretty early and I don't know how it happened, but all these people with these free tickets ended up in like this peanut gallery area. They took the first 100 people and we got to sit in the first three rows and I got to sit in the second row Mm -hmm. of that event. Mm -hmm. That was a life-changing event. And I went from there to the gay bar across the street from my house, was on the news that night because I was there and I was incredibly moved by it. And then two years later, to be in the situation where I'm sitting at home watching the Supreme Court make gay marriage legal and crying and thinking when I entered this, my field in 1988 Mm -hmm. that I never thought I would ever live to see that. Right. 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 Sitting across from you wearing a wedding ring. Right. Never would have thought that I, that I would see that. Right. I was on the news that night too for, I don't know. I ended up on the news for both of those events. (laughs) It was so validating. It says, I can be a second grade teacher and be gay because you know what? I can now, I can get married now. I don't have to be afraid. You know, I was afraid that if anyone knew I would never get a job to, to now I can actually get married mm-hmm. watching kids come out earlier and earlier because it's okay. And I think back to if it was okay when I was growing up, I would be a different person. Now, do I want to be a different person? Yes and no. I mean, would I like to be married right now? Yes, right? <laughs> so, you know, find me a husband, John. Yeah, but, yeah, stick carefully around that one, but yes. But, 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 but the, you know, the point being is, is kids need... I didn't have any role models, and now I can be a role model for kids that I couldn't be when I started in this career. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what advice would you give to a young gay teacher who's just getting started? Not to be afraid. It's legal to be gay and married in this country. And there's no reason that you have to be afraid anymore. I mean, and I, I, I see that all the time still. People say, you know, I'm, I'm discreet or I'm not. Mm-hmm whether they're teachers or not, there's still a whole group of 21, 22 year olds that still aren't comfortable in their own skin. And that makes me sad because I couldn't be comfortable in my own skin because I was scared. You don't have to be scared anymore. So just be comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. 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 So what's next for you? What challenge do you want to take on? What are you looking forward to? What is uh, something that you would love to take on or see accomplished? I want to really, really focus on quality education. I want to focus on how do you create the most impact for children and families. And what I want to spend my, the rest of my career doing is say, you need to focus on issues of excellence and doing what's best for kids and families that's, that's what I want to do. Got it. So I always end with ask, giving you a chance to kind of put yourself out there. If people want to get a hold of you, how, what, uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me right now is my website, which just launched, www.andrewkrugley.com. And that's 
A-N-D-R-E-W-K-R-U-G-L-Y. No E. Got it. No E. Well, this is great, Andy. Thank you so much for doing this today. It sounds like you're on the precipice of something major, so we'll have to have you on again in a little while and see what's spinning out. I hope so. Thanks for this opportunity. That's great. Thanks for joining me. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going.